Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. He's going to be continuing uh, his series of lectures today, all through the day, both in the Sunday school hour as well as both worship services today. So we're grateful to have him. Um, the, the aura up here is, has nothing to do with me or Gary, for that matter. It's a... Uh, we... Uh, it was a little dark in here, and uh, so we turned those on. And I, I was thinking last night as we turned the turned the lights on that uh, you know Gary's been lecturing uh, us on some uh, some things that may not be familiar, and I thought it was appropriate as we came to those things, and they all began to come together. That all of a sudden the lights came on, and I I hope that the, I hope the light is coming on in in many ways as uh, as things really. Uh, I, I'm thankful that the Lord has, has given Gary the ability to communicate these things because um, I believe that God has given the ability to make things clear. And so as we go along and as we see the scripture, I think you will find um, things becoming clearer as you go along. So we welcome you today and we're, uh, we're glad that you're here. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer together. Lord our God, we thank you for your mercies to us in Christ. We are grateful that you have not destroyed us as we deserve, as our sins deserve, but rather for the sake of Christ, who bore the full penalty, the full wrath that you had towards sin and sinners. For our sake, that you have turned aside your wrath, that it has been satisfied, and that you are kind to us for the sake of Christ. We ask that you would lift up our hearts to you this day, that we might bless you and worship you and serve you. And as we consider the, the great work that you are doing even now uh, to send the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world and the place that we have to disciple the nations, that we have every good hope that in your time and in the way that you've appointed, even to the faithful preaching of the gospel, the believing of it, the practice of, of your word, and that the nations indeed will be discipled. And so we pray that you will bless Gary as he comes this morning, and we ask that you would bless us in the worship hours which come as well, that we might lift up our hearts in praise and thanksgiving to you. And hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who have not been introduced to Gary, have not been able to join us, Gary was raised in western Pennsylvania, in the Pittsburgh area. He was at Western Michigan University, graduated there, went to uh, RTS and graduated with an MD Div from Reformed Theological Seminary in, in Jackson, um, and uh, then um, has moved to the Atlanta area, has lived in the Atlanta area um, since 1979, and uh, is now the, the president of American Vision, which is um, an organization that is devoted to um, to reminding uh, all who will listen of uh, the Christian roots of the American Republic and, uh, and seeking uh, to restore um, those roots as well as people come to recognize that, uh, that many of the things that we take for granted in this nation are really the fruit of, of the gospel, the fruit of, the, uh, of our ancestors who honored the Lord. And 
this, uh, as Gary pointed out last night, part of this restoration of, of the roots is the recognition of, uh, of what Christ has done and the finality of his work and, and the hope that we have for the future. And so this is all part of that. And so without uh, any further ado, uh, I'll turn it over to Gary. Gary, thank you again for coming to be with us. Those of you who uh, were not here Friday and Saturday, I, I promise I won't ask for a show of hands. Uh, you're you're at a little disadvantage in that this is this particular Sunday school lesson is really based upon things I've already covered. Uh, so you may have a number of questions related to that, and, uh, uh, and, I, and of course, I, many of those questions may not be satisfactorily answered in this Sunday School uh, hour, uh, but to, just to briefly bring you to where we are, we were looking at Matthew chapter 24, uh, which is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus delivered this while he was on the Mount of Olives. And if you remember the context of this, Jesus had just pronounced in Matthew chapter 23 that the, their house was going to be left to them desolate. And then Jesus walks out of the temple. And so we know that Jesus was in the temple when he made that pronouncement. And then his disciples ask him about this by pointing out the, the, the building, the temple building. And Jesus said, not one stone here will be left upon another. They will all be torn down. And the disciples then ask Jesus a question made up of three parts. Tell us what, when will these things be? That is, when will this? When will it be that not one stone here shall be left upon another? Uh, when shall these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that the disciples saw that the destruction of Jerusalem was something that was related to Jesus' coming in judgment that would usher in the end of the age, which would usher in the end of the old covenant. And now they, they knew this because they understood the background of the Old Testament. And if you were to go back and look at the, the, uh, the judgment that took place under the Solomon's Temple, when Solomon's Temple was destroyed, God was the one who was actively involved in that. I mean, he promised that over and over again that the Temple was going to be destroyed. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 5, for example, and that God oftentimes used, well, in most cases, used surrounding nations as his, the, what he would call his, the rod of his anger. And in the case of the Old Testament, it was Babylon that he raised up against uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, and uh, ended up destroying the temple. So with that background, the disciples asked about this coming destruction of the temple that would, would result in not one stone being left upon another. And the, the, the question that we were we have been dealing with here is what period of time is Jesus describing? Is he describing something that is in our future, in the distant future, from the time when Jesus spoke, or was he describing an event that was in the in the future of the disciples? And we went through Matthew chapter 24 up through verse 28, and we saw in verse 34 where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, 
this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And uh, we came to the conclusion, at least I came to the conclusion, conclusion, you may not have agreed with me, that every time, each and every time this generation is used in the New Testament, you will find that it always means the generation to whom Jesus is speaking. It never refers to a future generation. Therefore, Jesus was saying that all these things would take place in their generation. You will also notice in Matthew chapter 24 the extensive use of the second person plural. When you see these things, when you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Um, and they will deliver, verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation. So Matthew 24 is describing events leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I also pointed out that this isn't a new interpretation. It's not something that I came up with. It's been around for a very, very long time. If you look at most of the major commentators, uh, Methodist tradition, Baptist, Presbyterian, you will find that generally that's the position they took. And they didn't see anything unusual about this because they saw that this language was typical of the Old Testament. This is how the Old Testament described judgment comings. So we got to verse 28. And uh, we saw in verse 28 that uh, this, again, speaks of things related to the destruction of Jerusalem. There were literally corpses uh, in the street. And uh, to give you a couple of passages from the Old Testament that are quite similar to this, which describe the destruction of the first temple. Now, if you look at Jeremiah 7, 33 and 34, uh, remember, this is a description of the destruction of the temple, the first temple, Solomon's temple. Days would come when the dead, when the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. That's Jeremiah 7, 33 and 34. And later in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19.7, God revives his complaint against his disobedient covenant people. And he says this, And I shall make void the counsel of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I shall cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. And I shall give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, which is very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 about events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will get, will gather. And again, you have to if you're a, you're a Jew who's familiar with the Old Testament, listening to this language by Jesus, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and they might not have known all the details of all this, but this language was not peculiar to them. Jesus wasn't using some sort of cryptic language or a futuristic scenario language. He was using language that was common to any Jew at the time. They knew exactly what he meant when he used it. And I, I mentioned that a lot of commentators uh, would, would say that everything up through verse 28 refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. In fact, D.A. Carson uh, who's a very, very fine New Testament Bible scholar, um, comes to that conclusion. He says, everything up to verse 28 refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But when you get to verse 29, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, verses 29 through 34, when you get to verse 29, 
D.A. Carson and a lot of other people say, this refers to the, what we would describe as the second coming of Christ. And these are verses which depict what life will be like just prior to Christ's second coming. Uh, I don't believe that at all. Uh, and the reason for that is, there are, two, there are a couple of reasons, some we've already looked at. The, the audience here says, when you see all these things, in verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That would have to include verses 29, 30, and 31. Notice also, if verses 1 through 28 refer to events of that, of that time period of the first century, verse 29 has to as well. Why? Look at it. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So it doesn't say sometime in the future. It says immediately after. And so what I did is, of course, what this, is a, this Sunday school class is on hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is the science or the, um, the art of interpreting literature. And in this case, the... The science of interpreting scripture, how do you figure out what immediately after means? Where would you go to figure out this? Well, you go to other places in Matthew's gospel and you see how he uses immediately. And again, I did this and you go through Matthew's gospel and every time immediately is used, the next event happens when? Immediately. Uh, there, isn't a, there isn't a gap in time. So by the time you get to Matthew 24... If you have seen other uses of immediately used in, in, in Matthew's gospel, you have to expect uh, that it refers, in fact, to the same, the same definition. So if verses 1 through 28 refer to the events of the first century, verse 29 and following have to follow right along immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, here's the question. How do, you de- how do you determine what the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken? Again, where would you go to determine what that passage means? Would you look at today's newspaper? Would you read what prophecy writers say about this? Where would you go? Well, you go to the Bible. I mean, this is, if, you, if you want to know what the Bible says and you want to know what the Bible means, let the Bible interpret itself. And so that's what we need to do. And if you have any cross-references in your, in your Bible, you will note that verse 29 is a, is a quotation from a couple of places in the Old Testament. And the first place we want to look is uh, Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. So Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 13. And Isaiah 13 is a, is a prophecy concerning Babylon. Not Babylon today, but Babylon back then. And look at the beginning with verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. 
Therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. And as you read that, you go back and read Matthew chapter 24, you'll see a number of words that are used in Matthew chapter 24. But look at verse 10. This, again, Isaiah 13 is a description of the, of the judgment on Babylon in, under the Old Covenant. It says, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Now, here's the question. Did this happen in a physical way where the, where the sun went dark? Of course, if the sun goes dark, the, the moon also goes dark as well. And the, and the stars of heaven did not flash forth, forth their light. Or is this describing, is this using a, a typical language to describe the fall of nations? And if you look at, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 32, where I think this is even more clear. This is a description of the judgment on Egypt. Verse 6, And I will also make the land drink the discharge of your blood as far as the mountains, and the ravines shall be full of you. And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord. So, is this describing that the, that the whole universe with all the stars and the sun and the moon, that there's going to, there's going to be a physical, uh, physical change in all of these? No. And, in fact, I went back and, and read some uh, what commentators uh, said about these, and I took, I took commentators who were generally dispensationalists who would take a different position on Matthew 24, and they all said that this is typical language regarding judgment. Nations are in Scripture are often defined as sun, moon, and stars. And it's really no different today. Um, if you think about the, the flags of nations, it's, it's rather interesting, although, I mean, that isn't evidence of this in terms of what the Bible says, but it just gives you an idea. If you go through history, you will find that nations often identified themselves as sun, moon, and stars. In the United States, what, what's on our flag? Fifty stars. If you go to Japan, what's on its, what's on its flag? You, you have the sun. You have uh, most, Arab, uh, most Arab nations are, are, have what on their flags? There's a moon and a star. Uh, again, this is in terms of oriental symbolism, this was typical. And the Bible identifies nations as sun, moon, and stars. And so when the sun, go, when the sun is shining... The moon is shining, and the stars are in the heavens. It's a time of blessing for those, for those nations. When the sun and the moon go dark and the stars of heaven fall, 
that's a sign of judgment. So why does, why does Jesus take these passages and apply it to Israel, in this case Jerusalem, of the first century in describing the destruction of the temple that was going to take place where not one stone was going to be left upon another? Well, because Israel is described in the Bible as sun, moon, and stars. Do you... Can you remember some places in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament where Israel is described as sun, moon, and stars? Anybody? You go back to Genesis. Remember, Joseph has a dream. And what is that dream? He has a dream that... I was just talking to a friend on uh, a young lady I went to high school with. Uh, who's, she and her husband owned the old-time auction down the road. And I, 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 her, by chance, I, I, I went in there to see if maybe they were there this morning. And, and her husband was there, and, her, and Linda was at home. She just had her right shoulder replaced. She'd already had two hips replaced. And um, I, my wife and I connected up with her three years ago. And uh, so I thought, well, anyway, I talked to Linda on the phone, and she has become a Christian since the time I saw her and, and today. And she's, she's going to a, um, a, a black church. She, she likes it because the people are so responsive. And so, uh, and I said, yeah, you know, Presbyterian churches, they just kind of just sit there. I don't know what they're waiting for. Uh, so I asked you a question. Um, any place in the Old Testament where you... And I saw a couple of you nodding and kind of saying it. You know, I, I, I'm not a great lip reader, but I, I know enough. Uh, you can you can say things. Um, um, so Genesis chapter 37, Joseph has a dream, and he says that the sun, moon, and stars bow down to him. Now, Joseph's brothers and his mother and his father knew exactly what that meant. They didn't. They didn't look at that and said, oh, you mean the sun and the moon and the stars are, are going are to bow down? We don't understand how that's going to work, but we just, this is just marvelous. Isn't God a great God that he could make the sun and moon and the stars bow down to you? But when you read this text, they applied it to themselves, where the sun represented Joseph's father and the, and the, and the moon represented Joseph's mother, and then the, the, the 11 stars that bowed down represented Joseph's brothers. They knew exactly what it meant. It identified them as a single people of God, sun, moon, and stars. And again, I went back and uh, I looked at what dispensational commentators said about this. Uh, in ancient cultures, dispensational author, author Alan P. Ross writes, these astronomical symbols represented rulers. The dream then symbolically anticipated the elevation of Joseph over the whole house of Jacob. Joseph's father, the sun, his mother, the moon, his eleven brothers, the stars. So here's a dispensational author taking the position, which is the right position, by the way, is that these represent nations. And it's typical. If you go back and read the prophets, you will see this over and over and over again, where sun, moon, and stars represent nations. So here you find it in the very first book of the Bible. And now let's go to the very last book of the Bible and look at Revelation chapter 12. 
beginning with verse 1. And the great sign appeared in heaven. Now, there's an indication right there that this is a sign. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Now, the question is, is are we to expect that there is a giant woman somewhere who is big enough that she can stand on the moon, that she has asbestos skin so that she can withstand the heat of the sun, and is strong enough that she can actually carry a crown of 12 literal stars on her, on her head. And again, I don't know anybody who would interpret that this way. In fact, again, picking up some dispensational commentators, uh, Charles Feinberg writes, the sun, moon, and stars indicate a complete system of government and remind the reader of Genesis 37.9. God had caused royal dignity to rest in Israel in the line of David. So here is a dispensational writer who writes in the area of prophecy who goes to, to Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and he says that this indicates a complete system of government and reminds the reader of Genesis 37.9 what we already looked at. John Walbert, another dispensational writer, says, the description of the woman as clothed with the sun and the moon is an allusion to Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11, where these heavenly bodies represent Jacob and Rachel, thereby identifying the woman with the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In the same context, the stars represent the patriarchs, the sons of Jacob. Now, so now what do we do with this? So now we look at, we go back to Matthew chapter 24, keeping in mind the time indicators, keeping in mind the topic, which is the destruction of the temple and, and by extension the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, so much so that if you want to avoid this, you have to flee Judea, uh, verse 16 of Matthew chapter 24. So with all this in mind, Jesus takes this language, which is used in the Old Testament to describe the fall of nations, and he applies it to first century Jerusalem and the temple. And he says, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So there's nothing unusual about this language, and you don't have to interpret this and say, this is sometime in the future. And... Uh, it's amazing to, to, to read these dispensational scholars on Genesis 37 and, and Revelation chapter 12. When they get to this passage, they, they, go, they, they go crazy. They say, well, what this, what this really means here that the, the stars are really meteorites. Um, and and, and if, you, if you go to Revelation chapter, uh, you go to the book of Revelation, it talks about, in fact, if you go back to this again, it's just amazing what they have to do in order to make this stuff work. If you look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might uh, devour her child. Now, notice what it says. This dragon, with his tail, sweeps away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Question. 
If one star hit the earth, what would happen to it? You can say it. It's okay. It would destroy the earth. If a third of the stars of heaven hit the earth, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing left. It talks about a, and, and this happens in Revelation chapter 12. When you read on in Revelation, you begin to see things are still going on. I guarantee you if one star hit the earth, it would destroy it. So they say, well, it's not really stars, it's meteorites. How many of you have ever seen the movie Armageddon? Yeah, okay. Well, they're trying to get this big chunk of rock to split in half in order to go around the earth. But before that, you saw all these, these hits of, of meteorites. What if a third of all of the meteorites in heaven hit the earth at any particular time? What would it do to the earth? How many people do you think would be left, uh, left alive? Nobody would be. And what is the theory about how the dinosaurs went extinct? One meteorite hits the earth and threw up enough dust and debris to block out the sun that it destroyed the, the dinosaurs. Or what if you had a third of meteorites hitting the earth and doing that? I mean, there's, this, is, this is not what this is being described here. What's being described here is typical language from the Old Testament to describe what happens to nations. And another problem with this view is anytime you find in the Bible sun and moon and stars, it means sun, moon, and stars, not sun, moon, and meteorites. The, the three are connected. And how do we know that? Because you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where the connection sun, moon, and stars means sun, moon, and stars. So Jesus is taking this language that is used in the Old Testament to describe what happens to nations when they're judged, and he's applying it to Israel. And so he's taking the Babylonian Im imagery of, of, um, of uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 13, he's taking the Egyptian imagery of Ezekiel chapter 32, and he's taking all this stuff, and he's saying this is going to happen to Israel. And sure enough, it did. I mean, Jerusalem was, in fact, destroyed. Uh, the temple was gone. Um, Josephus writes that nearly a million, he says more than a million Jews, were killed. Uh, 50,000 or so were taken off into captivity. And so this, this language applies to Israel in the same way that it applied to Babylon and applied to Egypt under the Old Covenant. There's nothing unusual about this. And if you follow dispensational scholars and how they interpret Genesis 37 and Revelation 12, you would think that they would apply the same, the same interpretation to this. But they don't because they have a system that they have to protect. Now let's look at verse 30. Well, we're running out, of, running out of time. Look at verse 30. A lot of people look at verse 30 and they say, well, this is obviously a reference to what we would call the second coming of Christ, where Jesus comes from heaven on a cloud and he comes down to earth. He will stand on the Mount of Olives and uh, he will rescue Israel after the seven-year tribulation period. And then following that, he will set up a millennial kingdom. That's the general left behind Hal Lindsey, uh, late great planet Earth scenario. That, that verse 30 is, is a description of what we would describe as the second coming of Christ. And let's read this. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the, uh, the translation is not the best, but we'll, I'll, I'll hopefully just try to find this here a second. Because I want actually a dispensationalist to, uh, 
translate this for us. I don't know if I can find it here. Well, it doesn't matter. I'll do it myself. It says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. A couple of trans- translation issues. Look at verse 29. You see, and it says, And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That Greek word there for heavens is oranos. It's the same Greek word in, ver- in verse 30. And this really should read this, And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's the translation. In fact, Tommy Ice translates it this way, which is rather interesting because it supports what I'm going to describe to you, what I believe is going on here. What is the sign? The sign is is that the Son of Man is in heaven. That's the sign. And then it says, all the tribes of the land will mourn, meaning that the tribes of Israel will mourn. And it says, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, this is interesting because this is the first time that they is mentioned in this passage. All throughout this passage, it's you, second person plural. But here we see, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, where is this a quotation from? Daniel chapter 7. So if you want to know what's going on here, where do you have to go? Let's look at Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. He, he, he identifies, identifies himself as the Son of Man mentioned by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Where is the son of man going in this passage? Is he coming down or is he going up? Kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. Jesus says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. That's the sign. The sign is that the Son of Man is in heaven. And then all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, what does all this mean? Well, there are a couple of places in in the Gospels. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, let's just go ahead a little bit here. Matthew 26. Jesus is before Caiaphas. This is his religious trial. And they bring these religious charges against him. Verse 61. This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Um, Which is not what he said. Uh, It's one of those half-truths. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, or better, from now on, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Who will see this? The high priest Caiaphas will see this. When? He says, from now on. And the high priest understood what Jesus was saying because he identified himself with Daniel's son of man. Then the high priest tore his robe, saying, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. So Caiaphas is supposed to see this as well. And if you go through the book of Acts, what does, when Jesus, Jesus departs to go to heaven, how does he go? In Acts chapter 1, he is taken up in clouds and he ascends and he sits at the, at the Father's right hand. How do we know this? Because Acts chapter 2 tells us. Um, look at verse 33 of Acts chapter 2. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which was both... Uh, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. How do they know that? Because Jesus has ascended to the Father and has, and has been seated at his right hand. That, look, that is the issue of the New Testament. That is the issue. Uh, this, it's, it's Psalm 110 over and over and over and over again quoted in Scripture. When you get to, when you get to um, Acts chapter 7, Stephen, verse 54, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen saw this too. Now the question is, when did those in the, in the first century see this? Those who are being described here in verse 30. This is difficult to, to, to try to figure out, but I believe something was seen at the time Jerusalem was destroyed. And what they saw, I don't know. Uh, and I've come to this conclusion, if you go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is... Jesus is having a discussion here with Nathaniel. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, Now how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, here's the question. 
When did that take place? Is there any place in the New Testament where it is recorded that, not just Nathaniel, because the you there is plural, that they actually saw that? I haven't been able to find a place in the New Testament where it's recorded that they actually saw that. Did they see it? Well, sure they did. How do you know that? Because Jesus said that he would see it, and the disciples who were with him would see it. And I believe what you're seeing here in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, is during the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, that the, the, the people of that day would actually begin to understand what had happened. That the, the Messiah that they had rejected, the Messiah that they had put to death, the Messiah who had a church that was being persecuted, they would recognize that their deliverer had in fact ascended to the Father and had been seated at his right hand. And it's even possible that they may have seen that, the heavens opened and actually seen that for themselves. Because we have indications of that in Scripture that people here on earth at that time actually saw it. People saw Jesus ascend into heaven on the Mount of Olives, Acts chapter 1. Stephen saw it take place. And it's possible that Caiaphas even saw it. Maybe from, from the period from Jerusalem, he actually saw what took place on the Mount of Olives. So I believe this literally took place. And I believe people literally saw it. But it all takes place within that period between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70. In this particular instance, it's what takes place just before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And if you read a little further here, it says, I will send forth... He says, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of, the, of heaven to the other. Again, I just think this is the, the proclamation of the gospel that goes out after this, because now the gospel goes into all the world where, the, where all the nations are discipled. And this is, this is a, um, I think this is a very similar to what is in Isaiah chapter 27. This is talking about the deliverance of Israel under the Old Covenant being brought back from captivity to rebuild the temple during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it says, And it will come about in that day that the Lord will start his threshing from the, from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. And what you find here in Matthew 24, that Jesus takes that language and applies it to a broader context, not bringing them back to Jerusalem, but actually extending the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Because what happens when you get to the, what happens when you get to the book of Acts? Where does the gospel go? At the time of Pentecost, all of these people, from, it says, from every nation under heaven come to Jerusalem and they hear the gospel. And then what do they do? They take that gospel out throughout the entire Roman Empire. And when persecution arises, where do the disciples go? They flee and leave Jerusalem. And it says they go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth. And I believe that's what's being described here. Um, verse 32 it says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches has, has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Fig tree illustration here isn't talking about Israel becoming a nation again. Uh, 
I mean, if you, if you attempt to read that into the passage, you are really reading something into the passage. Jesus is so specific on so many things here, and all of a sudden he throws in this cryptic thing about Israel becoming a nation again and the, the fig tree. Uh, even John Walvoord, who's an, ardent, who's an ardent dispensationalist, and his commentary, commentary on this says that this is not Israel becoming a nation again. And he understands the implications. If you say this is Israel becoming a nation again, because when Jesus cursed the fig tree, if this is Israel becoming a nation again because Israel is a fig tree, then what do you do about Jesus cursing the fig tree in, in Matthew chapter 21? What does he say about the fig tree he curses in Matthew 21? There will never be any fruit from it again. And so John Walford was, was wise in not applying this to Israel becoming a nation again. And it, it, it just doesn't fit the context. And it's simply, it's, in, in fact, if you go to Luke's version of this, he says, now learn the parable from the fig tree and all the trees, not just the fig tree. Verse 33, even so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is fulfilled prophecy. Uh, and it vindicates both the character of Scripture and the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus was faithful to his word down to the minutest detail. There's no speculation that you have to go here and try to make this fit some future end time um, uh, coming. This is related to what took place in the first century. Now, does this mean there isn't any tribulation in the world and that we're not going to be persecuted anymore? Not at all. This is a singular prophetic event which deals with the, with the, with the establishment of the new covenant with the, with the elimination of the old covenant. Since the Jews as a nation did not do it voluntarily, God did it in terms of judgment and bringing an end to that old covenant system. An attempt to go back to that system with a rebuilt temple, animal sacrifices again, circumcision during the millennium, is contrary not only to the spirit of the New Testament, but to the text as well. Uh, this evening, uh, if you return, uh, if you have questions about this particular passage, and anything we've discussed, uh, if we have some time in what I'm going to deal with some, some diffi difficult prophetic texts, like these weren't difficult enough, uh, this evening I'll be, I'll, I'll be very happy to try to, uh, to clear up any confusion. I went through this rather quickly, obviously, because of time constraints. So um, let's, let's close in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. Uh, we thank you you have given us an interpretive guide in the word itself. And we thank you that as we read through this, we are uh, that we can be fully convinced that what you say about this, the topic of prophecy, uh, if, if down to the very minutest detail was fulfilled, just like you said in the time in which you said it, that you would also be faithful in the other things that you say about us as individuals, what you say about our nation, what you say about every facet of life. If, if it is in your word and you stated it, we know it will come to pass as you have maintained it. Be with us, prepare our hearts and mind for the message preached this morning as we lift up our hearts and minds to you in song and in word. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.